Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week we've got Julia Wester um, joining us on the Agile Wire. Uh, Julia is a PST. She is part of the Pro Kanban community. She's an entrepreneur and has multiple companies she's started. Maybe she'll tell us a little bit about that. Um, and she's also, I don't know, founder, co-founder, product owner, whatever you, she wants to call herself that day uh, for Actual Agile, which is a great full metric tool that we hope to dive into. So Julia, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and how you, how you kind of got to this point in your career. Oh, yeah, I'll try not to make it too much of a long story. But um, so as you said, I'm Julia Wester. And I live in southern Sweden, but I'm obviously, you can tell from my voice, a transplant from the U.S. Um, So we have been, my husband and I have been working in um, app development space for quite a long time. And so we had the opportunity to work with Dan Vacanti at Actionable Agile and help him out with some of his development needs. And then over time, um, you know, he was looking to do a few other things and was looking to get rid of the burden of a software development company. So we um, we struck a deal. And so now um, my company, 55 Degrees, uh, acquired Actionable Agile in July of 2019. And we've been running it since then and still partnering a lot with Dan and getting his good uh, knowledge. You can't get rid of that. That's, that's key. Um, but yeah, I've been spending my every day inside of metrics and flow and talking to people about how to do that and, you know, and everything. So Julia, why do you care about full metrics so much? Like why, why build a company around that or buy a company around that? That's a really great question. I, so when I started um, my career very quickly, I fell into a software development role, even though I, I was a music major, crazy story, but um Eventually, I fell into a manager role uh, because I'm I'm a very much people and process kind of person. I feel like that's I identify with that way more than I ever did with code. Um, but when I first became a manager, I realized I had a lot of really smart people working really hard and not getting anything done. And I realized that I had replaced all the coding puzzles and challenges with this type of challenge. And so I, I, you know, I uh, ended up learning about this thing called Kanban, and the rest is, is sort of history from there. Um, tried to implement um, Flow on top of some Scrum practices that we were already using, and that was really the turning point in my career. Everything I've done since then is really centered around bringing those kinds of concepts to teams and internal to the companies that I've worked, but now external to other companies, so they can essentially get more done with less stress, which is 55 degrees, my company, that's our tagline, more done, less stress, because that's really what we want to accomplish uh, here, and we want to make that possible for everyone else as well. That that phrase you were using earlier, where people are really busy, but work isn't getting done, um, I, f- I feel like I, I'm walking into that situation right now where just and I, I'm sure everybody's been in this situation, so it's not woe to me, but like it was three back to back 12 hour days. Yesterday, I finally called it quits after 10 because I was just getting a headache from, from working so much. Um, and I had put in time over the weekend, just like kind of just the stream of stuff. And the the position that I'm in is more of a project manager, project manager position. Don't don't get all upset, listeners, that I'm saying project manager, all right? It's not a dirty word, despite what it, somebody not, might tell yeah. you. Um, but anyway, like I can see all of this stuff going on. And the thing that I am struggling with right now is no, nobody's tracking that time to market at the level of value delivery, right? We're really good at tracking utilization numbers. And the the we're still very separated between the business and engineering, if you will. And uh, I, I, lo- I love everybody in engineering. And I'm thinking of one guy in particular. He's super awesome. He's got my back and I've got his. The The thing that I'm trying to, to work with over time, though, is he's very deliberate that he allocates headcount to demand, not initiative. And to, to use slightly different words, it's I can't measure the output of a variable 
delivery team, right? Like if this week it's seven people and next week it's three people, I guess I could, but it makes it a whole lot more difficult when we're thinking about predictability and being able to forecast into the future and trying to build out a lot of these things. So give me some free coaching here, Julia. Like <laughs> what, you know, that's the the struggle that I'm trying to solve right now. And I know I'm not the only one who's trying to solve that in an organization. So when you don't have a dedicated team or you don't have fixed team members or delivery, how, how do you start that conversation if we're going to start to try and have the conversation around flow and predictability with delivery of value? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky situation. Um, it's, I see sort of two different concepts there. One is that you're sort of working in, in a, a pool, and so maybe you're pulled over here for a little bit, and maybe you're pulled over there for a little bit. And, you know, you, you still sort of work together, but you, you're not focused on any one thing for a while. But then there's this whole other concept of my team just dynamically changes all the time, and that's that's really, really hard to use you know, your historical data to forecast with. Because uh, what we say, the general rule of thumb when you're trying to use your historical data to do forecasting, um, and we can talk about why you do that and why we think that's good, but the general rule is that the data that I use to forecast with um, was created by conditions that are roughly similar to the conditions that I'll be in when I do the future work, right? Mm -hmm. So if one month you had seven people and you're working on this one type of thing that's very different than the next month when you have three people and you're working on this completely different kind of thing, um, then that's going to be hard to just say, let me just use all of my past data. You're going to have to figure out a little bit more of which particular data is more representative. Um, it's, it's, so you can you can learn techniques and things to help you find the most representative part of your data, but that's not really the problem that you're facing. The problem isn't that it's hard to find my data. The problem is that we're in a situation that's making it so hard to find my data. And is there a way to sort of get around that? And how can I, you know, do that failure demand of trying to find the right data until I can get there? Mm -hmm. um, so that's tricky. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell a story. So uh, there was an organization I was working with, and if nothing else, they were inconsistently inconsistent with the way that they formed their teams. <laughs> and and what we did is, you know, when we walked in, everybody was using the old school way of forecasting, where we go around and we ask each person, how long do you think it's going to take to do this thing? And yeah. then as a project manager, like Jeff, be like, oh, yeah. That Tom guy over there, he's always he's always late. So we're gonna multiply that by two. Uh, he always, you know, overestimates. We're gonna divide that in half. Um, and and then they go and they take all these guesses and they add them together and then they do some forecasting off of it. So that was the old way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And it became very emotional because it was your forecast as the project manager or the product owner, whoever was in that sp um, space. Now, we've used things like Monte Carlo's where we say, well, we're inconsistently inconsistent. And let's just say, what well, what are we actually delivering? And mm -hmm. over a period of time. And then let's use that to forecast the future. And you can, and you might not like what your forecast says, because it's going to be a wide variety. It's like, yeah, 50% chance looks really good. But the 85 is going to be like way out in the future because, you know, it might, we might go down to two person team or something instead of a 10 person team. And it's going to really delay our delivery. And so yeah. I think that's the thing that you then have a conversation. If you want predictability, maybe we could add some predictability on the team. Like these things go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and I think they, they've elevated some of those um, conversations, I guess, uh, to different people in the organization to say, what, what are we really doing here? Um, another thing we did uh, with that client was it, like really had to live the value of focus like that we have in Scrum. And it's even more important when you have less people and constant change. And so less work in progress, really focus on work item age. And like, if we're not finishing something, then, you know, how, how do we get it to finish? And how can we get that next person that's going to be jumping in there to finish something? Because we don't want to be starting a lot of work when we know there's a lot of um, inconsistency in our system. Yeah, I like what you said that, you know, if you if you say, well, if you look at a long enough period of time, this craziness is a pattern and it's representative of the next year of craziness. 
yeah. then maybe you can use that whole year of craziness to forecast the next year of craziness, right? It's just yeah. harder when you're looking at smaller periods of time. Yeah. Um, no, that 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 was a good that was a good example. And the one thing too, I was thinking about is you know when you're when you're on the spot and you're the project manager and you're having to give that that estimate, um, it's just one estimate. We have no idea how likely that actually is. Right. Uh, so we're living in this world where we're acting like we can determine this one date by which we'll finish. Um, but we know that we're living in all this uncertainty. That's why we do things like Scrum and other practices to manage through that uncertainty. But yet we still forecast like we're certain. And so when we run all of the, you know, when we use simulations and tools to help us make thousands of those estimates and then see which ones are most likely it's a way to help us manage risk. You know, uh, we can start to determine how likely a particular forecast is. And you were right. If you are super unpredictable in your data, and if you if you are running all these simulations and you want to be super certain in your outcome, it's going to have tons of padding because it's got to account for all of that craziness that you've done in the past. Um, so, like you said, you can't just say. I want predictability and boom, there it happens. Predictability comes from building a stable system. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to get there is through adjusting your system to become more predictable. And then that 85th percent isn't so crazy anymore. So yeah, we like it, the probabilistic forecasting and the Monte Carlo simulations because it's fast and easy and it's driven by our past truth. Um, but it it's gives us realistic answers. And if we don't like them, it doesn't fix it for us. It just makes us have these conversations like in normal project management, when you don't like your forecast, what do I need to do to go fix that? Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, th I think the thing I really love about using that empirical data is it's math. It's not emotional anymore. It's like, it's just yeah. math. Like, I don't know. This is the data from what we've plugged in over the last few months. And here's what it tells us based off of what we have to do. If you don't like it, that's okay. We can all not like it, but what can we do about it? We could cut scope. We could reduce some risks. We could yeah. try to deliver early. You know, we what can we, what can we do here? And you can have those productive conversations instead of like a almost like a blaming conversation of like it's your fault for not estimating right. Are you sure you can't do this in a little less time? Um, yeah. Because I don't I don't think those are productive conversations. Yeah, and then a lot of. Tools, I know that in Actionable Agile, and each tool that does Monte Carlo's might do this in slightly different ways. But there's generally two ways that risk presents itself when you're trying to figure out either how many things I can get done in a period of time or when will this collection of work be done. Usually it's in that we're going to finish work at a slower pace, so our what's called our throughput is going to be reduced. Uh, say if you go from seven people to three people, right? Um, so you have a way to sort of see what would happen. What if I lost 30% of my throughput? So you can scale down your throughput to see what that forecast would be if you did lose 30% of your staff and you think that means that you'll lose 30% of your throughput uh, if life were only so simply linear like that. Um, but then also it's, um, you know, if you're trying to forecast a body of work, maybe those 20 stories turns into 25 because, if risk doesn't change your ability to finish work, it's going to create more work generally. Those are like the two ways that the risk sort of manifests. So in all of these kinds of tools, you can play around with those things. So you're leaving your actual forecast, which is based on what you know and your past data, and you can play around with parameters and see how that changes your forecast. So when you're having these conversations, you can see, you know, if it really hits the fan, what's the very worst thing uh, and start having conversations about managing risk that way as well. When you're um, so, so we've been talking about flow uh, a bit here, and I don't think we've ever kind of taken the time, or just I, I think we've always made the assumption that people know what flow is. Yeah. So when you are, I, I'm curious how you describe flow. Like I have this kind of analogy that I use, but I would love to hear you know somebody's coming in off the street or you're working with a new team or you're sitting down with the C-suite, how do you describe flow and why is it so valuable? Yeah. And, and I want to hear yours too. So let's not forget that. But um, so, I mean, just very simply, 
everyone that I know does some kind of work, right? We all do something for that we can call work. And there's processes or ways that we get that work done. So when we're talking about flow, we're essentially talking about how effectively and how efficiently work moves through any given process. So we have to understand the process. We have to be able to see how it moves through. And then we just uh, constantly try to improve that situation. You know, how does work move through? Does it start and stop a lot? Can we make it smoother? Can we get more to flow through in at the same time? So when I think of flow, I really mean work flow and that work flows through a process. And what it doesn't always account for that we don't talk about a lot is that a lot of times flow methods and um, just sort of a Kanban at its core makes an assumption that you've already determined that the work is valuable when it's going to move through that process. So we're focusing on just making that process super efficient, but you also have to make sure that you're not putting crap through that process because what's the point of making it more efficient to deliver crappy stuff? <laughs> so um, that's why you know, we're talking about flow. It's, it's great to combine it with other things like Scrum and things that have more of a value focus because it's so easy to just focus on effectiveness and efficiency without value. Yeah. Go, go ahead, we've, Jeff. We've had this debate. Uh, this was a while back. It was almost, I was think, I don't know, Jeff, if this is what you're thinking about. We were with, um, with uh, Julie. Uh, we were talking about product ownership. Maybe it was like almost a year and a half ago now in the podcast. And we had this great debate. And it's a nuanced conversation of like, what's better, like getting to delivery or focusing on customer value? Because if you don't have delivery, then how are you actually delivering the value? And so I was like, well, it's probably an and, but if you had to pick one, which one would be more more important? And uh, we kind of went back and forth on it. I think they are both important, but I have also seen it work for teams where it's like, if they're hit or going very long cycles of delivering, if you just focus on flow, at least you start getting stuff out of the door and you start learning what is valuable and what is not valuable by actually validating with real customers. That's and, true. Uh, and so, I don't know, it's a good place to start. If you're at a team and you don't have done increments, like if you just start working on flow, you'll have the opportunity to focus more on customers and providing them value into the future. Yeah, I do think it's that it is that you improve one a little bit and then you have to bring the other one up to that level and then yeah. a little bit up and a little bit up and you can't yeah. you can't ever just leave one unattended you know and a lot of times what i see is that even though we're working you know and, and we we talk about feedback loops whether you're just doing kanban or whether you're doing kanban with scrum and we have all these feedback loops that we're trying to do Really, um, I almost never see people actually take learnings from what they've delivered and put it back into their decision-making process of what to do next. So um, one thing that I did with a client was that we took that we were working on a portfolio board. And after done, we added some more columns so that it would force it to sit there while it burned in and they collected data. Yep. And then they validated that data. And then they did something with that, and then they could move it off the board. And I think if we don't force ourselves to see that there's life after done, then we just ship it and forget it. And we know we are supposed to be learning, uh, but we don't. I think yeah. that's a huge problem. Even for enlightened teams who think they're doing great Scrum and great Kanban, we're not always connecting that feedback loop back all the way. Yeah, I was just literally uh, talking about this yesterday, I think it was, and I'm, I, stroke of luck more than anything else is, is I basically found myself in, a, let's say, something like a portfolio level planning for, for the company. Um, and we're doing some really, really neat uh, initiatives here. And basically, the, the, the program itself is improve NPS. Like, all of our initiatives now are being focused towards this. We've got our customer pain points. We're working with our voice of customer team. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I was introducing to them was I, I'm kind of the metrics guy. I think that's how I got into this conversation to begin with. Um, but really 
so I, I used uh, Roman Pitchler's Go Roadmap, um, Goal Oriented Roadmap, and and I, I like it's it's super super minimal but sufficient, and I and I like I like that phrase. I think that applies to it. And so all it's doing is laying out very clearly the goal, the impact, and the metrics, and then it's got some of the features underneath. But really focusing on what's the goal and the metrics that we're going to be using for success. Um, so I was starting to introduce that to, to the, the product leads and then also talking about um, hypothesis-driven development mm-hmm. and just that hypothesis statement that we believe by doing X, we'll have this outcome and we'll know we'll achieve success when we see this change in behavior, this metric change or whatever. And go, going back to the conversation, Jeff, you kind of kicked this off with, which is, you know, what, which is more important. I kind of like that because it almost bakes it into the cake at that point where like you 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 are having that life after done column where when it built into that statement is an assumption with metrics that we have to go back and validate when we're done or when we think we're done, right? Because it, it is reinforcing the outcomes over the output and making objective uh, measures of success inside of there. So um, was was just kind of really, really excited with that. And I think just to kind of put a bow on this, I think if we went back a year and a half and, and listened to that that conversation, I think I started with value, and I have now reversed my position with it. Um, and I think it is the ability to get shit done, um, yep. because all value is assumed until we can actually get it out the door. So let's let's uh, make sure we know how to get things out the door, and then we can start to um, really tweak the the dials around what value is. Yeah, because you can have all the customer value you want, but if you can't get it out, what's the point, right? So you really have to have both. It's got to be a balanced thing. Um, I, I think that Life After Done would be a great Lean Agile band name. <laughs> yeah. we need to call that. <laughs> I like that. So, so anyone out there, you're welcome. If you're starting <laughs> up a band. You know, we allow you to take that name. <laughs> It also sounds like a good conference talk, you know, life after done. Oh, what does that oh, mean? That'd be a good one. There you go. There's my next submission right there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like what you said, though, Jeff. I guess I can say that, and I it can apply to it, either of you. That's awesome. Yep. Um, uh, so uh, Nicole Forsgren, she says, uh, she said one time, rub a little science on it. And so I think about that all the time. And so like what you said with the hypothesis-driven development, um, or whether you're doing Toyota Kata or Le- Kata-based approach, um, or you're using A3s or, or anything like that, we need to, no matter what you use, as long as you're using something that makes you think and say, if I do this, what do I expect will happen? Um, you're, you're on the right track, if not ahead of the game. Uh, because if we don't know what we think will, might happen, how do we know if we're successful when we did it? Hmm. Then we're just sort of just aiming, you know, in the wind. When I worked, uh, I worked at Lean Kit, uh, awesome tool. Um, and one of the things that they did in their office was that they had A3s. It's like a A3 size paper uh, for each major feature or effort we were trying to do. And in that, you have to go through that whole process of, you know, what do I think will happen? Um, How are we going to test it? And so just much like what you had with your thing. So I think that that's a that's a really good idea. And any anything that makes you that reminds you all the things that you're supposed to think of. And as long as you don't just write it down at the very beginning and then forget about it, which, you know, templates can't help you not do that. We have to remember to use the tools as they're meant to be used. But um, yeah, it, it's super important. And then you've set it up as an experiment already. So you know that no matter what happens, you've learned something and then you can adjust from there. I think too much too, we focus on whether you were right or not. And instead of treating it about, here's a learning opportunity and I think this will happen, but like a scientist, I should be happy with any outcome. And if it wasn't the one I wanted, how could I have known that sooner so that I don't spend as much time on this experiment next time? Yeah. And, and, and speaking of which here, like we, we keep talking, I, I, I may actually just steal that phrase, that life after done. Um, I imagine most of us, when we're thinking about done, we're thinking about those small items of value that are moving across the board. But oftentimes mm-hmm. that that's at a team level. When I was mm-hmm. just thinking about it at the pro- program level, like we're thinking these things that are going to be three 
three months, six months, maybe even a full year initiative of what we're going to be moving after. We've got product leads that are putting all of these great ideas together. Now, of course, we're going to break those down into individual pieces of value that we can deliver incrementally out to our customer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that question of when are we done is just as important, like at all the levels of that, because at some point, we're going to stop delivering the value that we thought we were going to or potentially, right? And so if we're waiting until we're done with the entire program initiative before we ask ourselves that question, like we, Mm -hmm. I always, we talk about lists of work and I'll I'll put these threads of of what I'm thinking here together in just a second here. But like if we've got an ordered list and the thing at the top is worth 10 points, and then the thing at the bottom is worth one point, you know, 10 points, then nine points, eight points, et cetera. And we've got another list, but the number one on that one is only worth five points. Well, when we do the first five things from that first list, we really should be asking ourselves, okay, hey, this list over here, that's actually just as valuable as this thing. Like, do we do we mm-hmm. switch? Do we continue uh, on, on the course here? And all too often, like, success or done is measured when the entire list of work is completed, mm-hmm. and then we can move on to the next list of work that we've got laying around. So and just when we got as, through the first five, do we ever ask and say, were we right about what we thought the importance was for these things we haven't finished yet? Yeah, you're, you're going exactly exactly where, I, where I'm going with the, the story. So I, I'm glad it's making sense here, right? Like <laughs> done is just as important to be validating at the team level when we're delivering something, whether that's ideally every few days, maybe even every day, every week, it doesn't matter what that frequency of delivery is, we should be double checking, validating at that level. And that should cascade or flow up to the higher level uh, perspective or, or, or view of the initiatives that are moving as well. So. Because in all of this is kind of stems from somebody uh, yesterday in one of our meetings saying, like, we never say no and we never cancel things. We never stop. Once we start the initiative, we do it to completion, regardless uh, of any changes that are going on. And that's really dumb. Like, how could we change that? And I think p- part of the answer to that question is, well, if you're measuring the value that you're delivering through these things and you're finding that it's less than the supposed value of something else, that's a great reason to say no. But if you're not coming to the conversation with that data or nobody's even looking at it, well, then, of course, you're not going to cancel something midway through. Right. The goal is to get all of this stuff done. As a rule of thumb, I have found that it's an 80-20 rule most of the time. 80% of the work is 20% of the value. And you know, 80% of the value only is 20% of the work. And so if you could just do the first 20% and run the experiment and give it time to like say, did we solve the problem? And then go run another experiment while you're build that, you know, while build that one out while you're doing the, letting the other one run. And once you have the results back from that first experiment, then you decide, cool, did we learn something? Do we need to change something? What do we do next? Um, I, I see that too often in organizations, Jeff, and in what you're talking about sounds a lot like a project where we're just going to do everything inside the project and we're going to, we're going to gold plate this thing. Cause we don't know all the things we're going to need. So we're going to define it all up front for a oh. year, you know? Yep. So it, it sounds like you're edging towards that with the, the, the situation you described. You just reminded me of something. So, uh, F5 networks was another place that I worked and I was an IT manager for the web dev, web dev team there. And I guess for a long time they had struggled. And so when the support part of the org finally got their project prioritized through the IT committee and all of that, they're like, we might not get another project for seven years. I better put every freaking thing into this project. And it was like, if it wasn't all done, the world was going to collapse. And we know that's not true. But I have so much dysfunction there. <laughs> and it doesn't really help anyone. So... Yes, the, the observation about it is, is well, I, I told you I'm a project manager. So yeah. uh, they, they are more projects. And I don't, like, we can have a nuanced discussion around why that may or may not be a great thing uh, later on. But one of the things that I have come to understand is regardless of what you call it, um, yeah. that project that we are going after um uh, isn't all that different than a product goal that we are going after. It is a focused initiative with a targeted outcome. We just happen to call yeah. it a project. In Scrum, you might call it a product goal. Um, so I don't, I don't really like 
that discussion between the differences, maybe that's worthwhile. Um, but it doesn't bother me to say I'm a project manager and I'm helping to manage this project. It's this initiative that is focused on this goal is what I'm more uh, more focused on. Um, and then for, for my position, exactly like what we were talking about, it is my job to take the big, cool stuff, break it down into little bite-sized pieces of value that we can get out to our customers frequently, order it by value and making sure that we're, we're moving the levers on the metrics that we're going after. And so the, the reason I'm giving a little bit more context to this is because one of the other big things I've learned is oftentimes, in a, and I don't mean to beat on the scrum.org community because we're all great people, um, but when you exit the scrum.org community, like no, nobody gives a damn about this scrum stuff. Like for, by and large, right? You talk to an executive, they don't fucking care. Like they want to see the out the outcomes of using this framework. They don't want to talk about scrum. Um, and so scrum is awesome. Don't mean, I'm not trying to beat up on the framework, but like nobody cares. Uh, it's a means it's, to an end. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, and I know we've, we've talked about this on the show before, so I'm not trying to beat a dead horse with that or necessarily defend my position. Um, but I've, it, it has been very interesting coming into this 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 project manager role. I don't use any scrum words. I don't talk about any of that stuff. I don't use any of the vocabulary. Um, I'll just focus on, hey guys, let's let's talk about the things that we're going to do next. Just just make sure that we're all in alignment so that we all understand because nobody likes building something and then find out the requirements changed on them. So let's just focus on the next few things that we're going to be working on. I set up a meeting and everybody's on mode. They're like, hey, that's a great idea. Yeah, we're going to have focus. I'm like, okay, how about this list of stuff that we're putting together? I want to have it be the one-stop shop. So if anybody needs a question about, oh, our cancel account workflow, we're going to have one item on this list over here in JIRA, and we're going to have all the tickets that are going to be for that work linked up to this. And when we talk about it, it's all going to be a focused discussion there. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, that's absolutely what we want, right? Like, I don't need to use any of these scrum words. Mm -hmm but we're totally doing Scrum, or at least we're, we're moving in that direction, which is super ironic because they hate Scrum and they don't want to use Scrum. I'm like, hey, that's cool. We don't need to use Scrum, um, but we're going to do Scrum. Uh, yeah. You're just not going to know. You're just going to do common just, sense things that make sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's where I'm at and why I was so interested with the, the Kanban and the flow stuff early on in the conversation is where they started was layers of a cake. Right, we're gonna do kind of all the back end, and then we move on, yeah. and then we do the the middle, or they're doing design before that, and so that's just the maximum amount of time that something is gonna take. Right, lots of risk inside of there, and so now we're finally getting to the point where that we're we're breaking things down into individual pieces, having lots of great discussion, um, kind of all those things I was just highlighting there, mm -hmm. um, and now the the trick that I'm trying to get to is. And, and why I was talking about flow was now I'm starting to, to measure those pieces from the point that we start working on that piece to the point that it gets out the mm -hmm. door. Like, let's yeah. at least start there. Um, and the next layer below that is process efficiency or flow efficiency. Mm -hmm. But it's really freaking tricky when the, the, the variables of the team members are constantly coming in and out. So anyway, I didn't mean to give all of yeah. that context, but that's where I'm at. And like people are really are loving it and you don't have to yeah. use the vocabulary. Well, you know, what's cool about that is that it almost doesn't it doesn't matter for those. Met it, it, it matters more for forecasting and predictability when you're trying to give a probabilistic forecast that that's changing all the time. But what it doesn't matter for is basic flow metrics. They are what they are. So if you know where your start, which you know, you're know you tracking those small pieces now from one point to another. And so if you know when they entered the start and when they entered the end, that's the only information you need to create all the basic flow metrics. And so the um, elapsed time it takes to go from point A to point B, which we call cycle time, um, is a basic flow metric and it is what it is because of things like, you know, the team drastically changed and that's why it's sh long or, you know, there could be other reasons why it's super fast. So those flow metrics, the fact that when you start gathering them, the whole point is to uh, drive better discussions and help make better decisions. It doesn't, you know, it's not fixing your problems for you, but you can now take that, those cycle times of all your different you know, larger pieces of your product and or your project or whatever word you use and say, well, here's 
what our capability is to deliver these. Then you go into why is that? And then you make those experiments of how to improve, you know, those out the outcomes of the output <laughs> of how fast you can move stuff through. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think just having those basic metrics um, is the first step. It's hard to jump directly to let's make some probabilistic forecasts. First, you got to start out with the basic data because that's what feeds that. And if you know how long it takes you to get from point A to point B and, you know, how many things you get to point B in a certain period of time, which is another flow metric of throughput, the rate at which we finish work. I mean, those are the, the elements of everything else that we use, the, the fundamental, you know, metric elements that you use in all of that forecasting. Um, so starting there drives tons of value. So I got a question for you, Julie. This might be mm -hmm. a, a geeky question that no one cares about besides the three mm -hmm. of us. But um, so um, flow efficiency, Jeff just kind of casually mentioned that. Yeah. So for the listeners that are out there, flow efficiency is just a, a percentage of the amount of time you're actively working on something versus the time it's sitting idle or in a delay status. Yep. Um, and I think it's fit for purpose. So the way I would use flow efficiency would be to make something transparent in an organization of we have a lot of work waiting and not a lot of work being done. And that's very costly yep. to us. Yeah. But I wouldn't use it in Jeff's case with his team. He's got a team that doesn't like Scrum, probably doesn't like Kanban, probably mm -hmm. doesn't like flow metrics. What I think would work really well for them and what I've seen for a lot of teams is just work item age. And so if you just yeah. say like, hey, something that's already old is only going to get older over time and things get older, they lose value because it degrades in knowledge work. And it also becomes more stressful for us. And if we want more done and less stress, yeah. we should probably try to get the things done that are getting old because they're going to cause us more and more stress as they get older. Yeah, you're spot on. And do you agree with that? Or how would you how would you use the two of those work item age and, and work and flow efficiency? Yeah, I that was a really great point. Um, I would say that flow efficiency has its uses. Um, but if you ask people like Dan McCanty, he loves to hate that metric. <laughs> it's good in a certain way, but it can be overused in situations that aren't fit for its purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and the more granular you look down into your workflow, the less fit for purpose that particular metric is. It's much better when you're looking at like the value stream level mm -hmm. and you can see, you know, um, in this area of my value stream work, you know, it, this is how much active time and this is how much passive time. It really helps us with how things transition through a workflow and catching that. And the other thing that it's really useful for is, like you said, when we start looking into the age of our work and why it's as old as it is, we'll get back to aging itself in a second. But once you start seeing how old things are, you start looking at why is that thing so old? And that's when you might start to break down the information looking into of our you know, of this elapsed time, how much was actively spent working versus how much was just waiting. And the reason that that's helpful is so that we can make better decisions on how to improve the age, right? Do we spend, do we spend more time learning how to do the active work faster or do we focus on removing weight? And I think mm -hmm. that's about as granular as a decision-making process that you should use that metric for. It's more of an indicator to help you decide where to focus your limited improvement time. Do I learn how to code better or do I figure out these transitions and these blocked periods or wait times? Um, but like you said, with the aging, that is something that just over the past couple of years, I've really come to see how important that really is. And if uh, I tell people now that the, the work item aging charter, the aging work in progress chart is actually the most valuable chart in actionable agile. I'd agree with you. And it's because if you pay attention to that, then you are going to do things that eventually improve your predictability. And what's odd is that when I started learning Kanban, it was all about limit your work in progress, limit your work in mm -hmm. progress. I can limit my work in progress and still get some really old stuff on my board. It is not enough. But if I had started with work item age and just try to make things not age, I would probably have gotten to limiting my work in progress to keep items from aging, but not the other way around. 
And so if you want a stable system and you want more predictability, you have to look at um, this construct called Little's Law. And there's some assumptions under there, things like I start work at the same rate as I finish work. Um, One of the other ones is I don't let items age in the system unnaturally. You know, so when we do things like um, uh, reprioritize work and put things on hold that have already been started and other things, that ages that work unnecessarily. Um, And so the more we start paying attention to age, the more it will lead us to do all the other things that we're going to need to do to become more predictable and have better forecasts. So, yeah, what we tell people is if you only do two things, um, pay attention to work item age and limit your work in progress. And if you do that every day, um, you will most likely become more predictable over time. Yeah, so the reason I love, oh, go ahead. Uh, all right. The reason I love that um, that chart that you're talking about. Um, so just to, for those that aren't there, we don't have a visual of it right now. But <laughs> it's uh, it, imagine this this beautiful chart that has your flow of your system of like what stages the work is in, that it's actively in progress. And then you can turn on different colors. Like you got a red, yellow, green of where things are at. And as things get to a certain level, it's like, oh, 50% of the work items are done or past this step in our in our flow at this time now this has gone up into like it's in the danger zone it's going to get really it's going to get older than our normal expectation of when work gets out of our system and now it's up in the red it's it's definitely at risk you know like it's 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 in critical period of time here yeah if you focus on the things on the right and then try to move those um that are the highest items and try to move those to done that's going to affect that work um, item age the the most and it's a leading indicator and so it's still you still have a chance to change it you know and that's yeah. the great thing about it you know <laughs> I it's, love it's that. Not like yeah it's like it's this is the thing that yeah I can tell you what your cycle time is and your throughput was for the last couple months but that's in the past there's nothing I can do about that anymore this I can do something about this is directly going to affect how fast we get work to our customers how fast we deliver value and if I I know what to do right now to to increase that and i have a uh, have a visual that makes that very very clear as a team and you can make daily decisions on on what to do to affect that yeah i mean because when item finishes aging it it then gets a cycle time so as work moves into that last column on your board that's when it becomes a dot on your cycle time scatter plot and then becomes a data point used to tell people how long it takes you to get work done so one of the really cool things is that we bring over the um, the lines from your historical data and overlay them on, cross, on top of your aging chart so you can see how long does it generally take us to finish work. And so if we say, well, 85% of the time things get done in 10 days or less, and so we draw that line, then we can use the age of our work in context because if we care about predictability, that means I need to make sure that 85% of my future dots finish on or before that line. If I don't, then that line will start creeping to older and older and older, and that affects forecasting. Uh, And if I am a scrum team, for instance, and I do two-week sprints, but my 85th percentile is 16 days or 35 days as I had one team have that, then uh, I can tell you right away work is carrying over from sprint to sprint. You're not finishing all of that. And so just knowing that gives you this great indicator and can help you start managing towards that. So in that kind of case where you're way off from where you want to be, we say, okay, you've got this historical line. That's your actual data. You need to bring that down. But have in mind this place you want to be and try to get that line down over time to the place you wanted it to be. Yeah. It's odd talking about it without pictures. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's such a visual construct. Yeah. So let me let me let me bring this back because uh like I want some free coaching from both of you. Okay. So, um, and this is one of the joys of, of being on a podcast. Uh, so talking of, uh, kind of the, the, the context for the situation that I'm in, I've already kind of talked about it quite a bit, but one of the reasons that I want am in particular are looking for flow efficiency, um, is one, I think it's just going to be easier for me to get, but two, I could do everything that you were just talking about. Um, highlight things, and if you were looking at our at our workflow, they would be synonymous with a role, right? That there'd be a build it column, which would be the developers. Mm-hmm. There'd be a test it column, which would be the the quality engineers, and 
things would probably light, light up red on that board because things are sitting around. But back to the, the whole musical chairs of team members being moved around, it's because they're over here working on this thing because this is the fire that needs to be put out. And then they're over here working on this thing because this is mm -hmm. the fire that needs to be put out. And so I, I understand that. And I think if even if I highlighted that on the 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 for the the work item age, it, it wouldn't necessarily change behaviors. But when we're thinking about flow efficiency, and Julia, you, you had brought this up earlier when you were talking about it, it was like it tends to make sense higher you go up in the organization. So what I'm what I'm looking for feedback on is I think if I'm able to capture that efficiency number at a, let's just say an item level for an initiative that we're working on, and that tends to be consistent or fairly consistent, I should be able to raise that up to the, the goal level for that, that project that I'm looking at. And let's, let's be uh, generous and, and say that it's 50%, right? Um, the conversation that I wanna have with the business is okay, what if we were able to get this to market 50% faster, right? Like, yep. what would that have been worth to us? Um, mm -hmm. Because there is a legitimate conversation to have uh, that this this guy that I was talking about, like, it in Scrum, like, or, or I shouldn't even say Scrum, but like, oftentimes, yeah, we, we, we know that not everybody's going to be busy all the time, and that's okay, right? There's Slack built into the system. There are other things mm -hmm. that they can be doing to produce value. But from his position, it is valuable to have a, a high utilization because that keeps headcount down. There is a dollars and cents that the organization has to pay to its employees to keep them there. So I, I don't want to dismiss that, that side of it because I, I think that is valuable. Um, but when if I can bring data to the conversation and say, hey, what would it have been worth to get this done 50% faster? Would that value have been worth more than the, the, the cost of having these additional mm -hmm. headcount, right? So back to, I, I love that, let's rub a little science on it and let's remove emotion from the conversation. And we can do that when we've got some some data and some numbers there to support it. So yeah. that that's kind of where I was going with it and mm -hmm. my intent with it. I'd love to get some feedback from you two on that. Yeah, I think um, you're on the right track because a lot of times we focus on staying busy because we are worried about cost accounting and getting the getting the absolute most out of what we've paid for, right? And we've paid for these people and damn it, we're going to get all the time we can out of them. And But we don't realize that by filling up all the empty space and making bad choices about how we switch back and forth between things, it's actually causing us to have worse delivery than had we, you know, not worried so much about the utilization. So that's exactly what you just said. And I think you're on the right track there. I think the um, term, and I, I want to figure out how to make this a chart in the actionable agile, uh, is called flow debt. Some people talk about flow debt, like the difference between what you start and finish. That's not really flow debt in the way that um, I'm thinking about it. Flow debt is much like technical debt and that, if you start something and then you put it on hold because something else comes and bumps it out of the way, that time that it's pushed out of the way is debt, flow debt, you know, debt inside your cycle time. And so you're looking at that's the bit of time that's the that makes up the how much faster you could have done it in your scenario here, right? So you're adding up all that debt time to say if we had not had that debt, um, here's when it would have gone out most likely, we don't know for sure. Um, and that helps you utilize that half of the argument. And then you need to understand what the savings was in their view, you know, and then you can compare those two numbers. So this concept of, of flow debt is really important. Um, and if you, if you are to play games like the uh, Twig, the work and process game, and even other games like at Kanban or whatever, we throw things in that simulate your kind of situation where we divert resources and put them somewhere else. Um, we track that somewhere else part and we see how fast that moves through. And then we see the other stuff be higher up, you know, they finish longer and we compare uh, that data set from just managing work regularly to what if I had fewer things going on at one time or what if I made different choices? And then we look at how the data shows in, um, in that kind of situation. And we can see very easily without knowing anything about the work, 
which two cards were the special cards in this other board in this first game. But when we make different choices about how we do our work, there's much less difference between the expedited cards and the regular cards, which, ooh, that can seem like magic. But what it really means is that maybe if we change some of how we work, we don't have to have as many expedites because then more of our work is finishing as fast as expedites do in our previous situation. Mm -hmm. So it's having the expedite, having all of that debt is a... I like the term failure demand Um, and all the things that we then do to manage and uh, fix things on top of that can maybe never even be needed if we just make slightly different choices. Um, It's not that cut and dried because there's no one magic formula and there's also other things about making work small and, you know, or right sized and all of that that go in. Nothing. It's all systemic. Nothing's ever one thing is going to fix a problem in, in a work system. Um, but yeah. So I got another question for you, Julia, that you made me think of. And I'm just going to skip Jeff's a little bit. Um, so you made me think of this flow debt. And oftentimes clients that I'm working with, they have customers that are causing the flow debt. Like they're waiting for them yeah. to get back to them. They have they might even have contracts in place that say they have to get back to them in certain SLAs, but they don't. And uh, they work very traditional, very phase-gated approach. And they, you know, they just, they just don't work that way. And mm-hmm. um and so have you ever seen it where people pass that cost on to their customer? Like, I'm just wondering, like, if you had Flowdat and you could say, hey, customer, this could be a very cheap, you know, implementation or whatever we're doing for you. And mm-hmm. if you're responsive, but if you're not, then we're going to charge you half of what we would charge if we were working on it while sure. we wait. Have, you, know? you, ever have you ever paid seen? for expedited shipping? Yeah, I guess you have, right? So you it's pay exactly extra for that. exactly the same thing. You pay extra to get your work expedited. And then the thing is, is that how do you translate that to uh, more invisible types of work? <laughs> you know, do you pay a premium to have to fast track? But I mean, going back to the, the thing about how making, you know, expediting things over here hurts something else that's already started. I'm not saying you should never do that because uh, that's not realistic. Sometimes you're going to have that. And I think like Jeff, he just wants the data to show the problem so you can have conversations about, is this okay? If it is, then fine. I guess this is okay way for us to work and we don't need to change anything. But if it's not okay, what would we do differently? I mean, that's a valid conversation to have, right? Why fix it if it's not broken? Maybe you fix it for a different reason, like people are unhappy or whatever. But honestly, the the point of the data is to show your trade-offs, like here's what happens here, here's what happens there, and then you need to make an informed decision because I don't want to tell you not to expedite work. I want to tell you that when you do it, here's the consequence. And then you have to decide in which situations that's okay because what will probably happen when Jeff takes this data to whoever he's taking it to is that they'll say, oh, that's not great, right? But some of it's unavoidable, so let's figure out which one's aren't unavoidable and let's try to minimize that and that way the only time we do this is when it is unavoidable you know Mm -hmm. so we figure out the bit of which is just happening because of unimportant choices that we're making or uninformed choices we just we don't know what's causing a problem and then you know we accept the bit that's going to happen no matter what we have no control over it right now or or the value is on the right side of making that decision I wanted to try to get back to your question too, Jeff, but yeah, I mean, I think that sort of ties it together. Um, Are we anywhere near the topic that you wanted to try to get to some resolution on? Oh yeah. Yeah. I like the, the way you are articulating is exactly what I'm going after. Like it is not my place to say what is right and wrong for the business. I certainly have an opinion about it, but absolutely it's biased. It's biased with, from the information that I know with the experience that I'm coming in with. And I've only been there for a fucking month. Like, what do I know? Right. (laughs) Like, but if I can simply present to you the data and allow the, the business to make the decision that it wants to, I, I mean, I really like the way you articulate it. That, that's all I'm trying to achieve is yep. unadulterated data. Like, th- this is what it is. This is what I think we're seeing. Uh, here's the ramifications of it. Is it okay? Is there something we might want to think about or investigate changing with that? Um, 
And, and that's that's all I'm trying to pre- to present in the in the conversation. Yeah. And I think you just have to be okay with imprecise data, which almost all data is not extremely precise anyway. It's you just work with what you have. And when you're working with something like flow efficiency, it's extremely difficult to be precise. Um, because you're not tracking every second you step away from your desk as wait time and all of that. And something could be in a working column, but there's five other things in the working column. Then all that time it spends there isn't really active time. Uh, and so maybe you can use things to flag that and grab that, but you'll never really get down to the minute. But the good thing is, is that it doesn't matter. There's so much wait time that if we ever get to a point where we needed to focus on that small bit of wait time, then we're way ahead of the curve anyway. So we take the imperfect data that we have, see that even with that, we can see there's a huge imbalance of wait time versus active time. And that'll probably tell you that the big bang for your money is to reduce weight, not figure out how to work faster. Although it's like that other thing where you sort of need to keep them in balance too. You can't let people never have learning and skills growth. You know, looking at one metric only can be very misleading because we are geared to optimize whatever we measure. We want it to be great. We're measuring it for a reason, right? So that must be important. So let's make it good. Um, But if we're not measuring things that are in tension with that, um, you know, or things that we might do to game that metric, then we will fall into those traps whether we mean to or not. So if we are measuring this epic flow efficiency, we need to be measuring epic uh, story cycle times to make sure that we catch if we're overcompensating for this and causing a problem down here. Mm-hmm. Same thing with speed and quality. What if we're really trying to go fast and we just look at speed, we'll be awesome, right? But we broke the whole company trying to get there and we just didn't see that because we weren't looking at our other metrics. So having sort of that balanced dashboard of things that are in tension with each other is great. So, I mean, that's not something that I came up with. That's more of a polarity mapping kind of concept. There's these awesome things called polarity maps, which I love by the way too. But um, so when you're thinking about what you measure, you know, there's a whole thing about, you know, making sure you're measuring the right thing in the first place. But once you decide what to measure, a good thing to think about is now, what will I measure to make sure that I don't over uh, optimize this and break the company? So what's my balancing metric? You made me think of uh, a way to me to help Jeff. And again, this is imperfect. It wouldn't go down to each granular level, but what if you took each of those PB PBIs or those items that you're saying are the bigger items and you average over a period of time. So let's just say over a month, you say, well, 90% of the time, actually there was a task in progress for all the items that we had that we're working on. But what we found is that on average, people have three tasks in progress at a time. Can I take that 90% divided by three and say, really, it's more like 30% flow efficiency because although it looks like there was 90%, they weren't working on two of the items when they were working on one of the items. They were working on one. I mean, it's, I think it's imperfect, but it's it's probably gets you in the ballpark. I don't know. I just, we have to play with the math on that and think about that. That was what I thought about over the top, off the top of my head, like a way to maybe try to get you close. Yeah, I mean, cue size, I mean, queuing theory, that's a thing. That's not an opinion, right? And we know that uh, the work in process is a queue. Like, it's it's a yeah. collection of stuff that's happening at one time. Um, we know that's a leading indicator for cycle times in the future. So we know that the more stories you have ongoing at one time, the longer your epics are going to take because the longer your stories inside the epics are going to take. So I do like the balancing of the the whip metric with that. Um, But yeah, I I think we've highlighted a risk of flow efficiency. If you go into it unknowingly, you might think you're better than you really are with your flow, Um, which is one of the reasons you have to use that very, very carefully and in a very informed way. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to do a quick plug here just because it, it, it's been really interesting and we've been talking a whole lot about data, but I, I just started reading, um, I'm just going to pull it up here really quick, Tim Harford, uh, The Data Detective, um, and it's all about the biases when we're thinking about data, how we're collecting the data, how we use it. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll do a, a quick story here because I, 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 when he brought it up, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that. But if you remember the, the story around... Um, 
there was this, the people were selling jam in a convenience store and they, one day they had like 20 different flavors of jam and they were tracking the sales. And then another day they only had like three flavors of jam. Uh, and then they found out, oh, people buy so much more of this jam when there's less. And then all of a sudden, all these articles started coming out about optionality and how you're overloading your customers with too many options. You actually want less options and blah, blah, blah. Well, that, that study was valid. The problem was uh, there were more studies that were done after it that said, no, actually, that's all bullshit. Um, the average difference in options comes out to be 0%, like more or less options for your customers. Uh, the, the the problem was none of that data was uh, uh, published in the same way afterwards. And so we have that something called survivor bias, where like we only know what survived the data collection, not all of the stuff that didn't survive. So anyway, great, great, great read. And I just thought because we were talking so much about data, um, uh, it's got a lot of really interesting little tidbits about that, about how to collect it, how to remove your biases from the data, et cetera. Yeah, no, there's that's that sounds like an awesome book. And I definitely know his name. Um, actually, I, I love another book of his. I think it's him called Messy, completely off topic, but. It's, it's a great book. You should read that. Um, but there's also another book by Douglas Hubbard called How to Measure Anything. And mm-hmm. it also helps us attack the notion that we can't measure things because we don't have great data. And the truth is that the less you know, the less data you need to know more than you know right now. <laughs> so even if you just have a little bit of information, you're better than where you were. It doesn't need to be perfect. But yeah, we have so many biases um, that go into the way that we think and we can't get rid of them, but maybe we can become more aware of them. Going back to the previous topic we had about hypotheses and you know, all of that, um, one of the books that I really love is called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And she just released another one that I need to listen to, but um, I- I'm still a bit stumped. And I think the second book is supposed to help because there's this thing called resulting where there's a situation in which you could make the right decision but have a bad outcome. <laughs> so, and if you did it again, you should still make that decision. But a lot of times, if we're using outcomes to inform our future decisions, we might change our decision in that case. So I, I'm still trying to work through that one. So maybe my call out to the to the world is, we know we need to connect those feedback loops, going back to that really early discussion. But with this whole resulting thing, how do we know when it was a good decision and just bad luck or if it was the wrong decision and, you know, mine just blown. That's what it, I'm trying to go right now. It reminds <laughs> me of another situation that the guy was talking about in this book where a, a magician made a video of him flipping a quarter, having it land on heads 10 times in a row. Like yeah. it, legit, it happened. Um, but what you didn't see was the nine and a half hours that he was doing that for straight in order for that to, <laughs> to actually happen. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it's just so neat when we're talking about collecting data, like all these different variables. Yes, it is absolutely possible that maybe in your experiment, you got heads 10 times in a row because it absolutely can happen. But like you wouldn't know unless you were running multiple experiments finding in trying to duplicate those those results again. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I get really excited with this type of stuff. <laughs> I mean, too often times innovation like there's somebody who's already come up with the idea it just wasn't the right time and so yeah. that happens a lot i mean we go to social media right there was friendster there was myspace and then there was facebook like man how do i be facebook and not those other two right yeah. um and so I, I i agree with you like i think that there's a time and a place where it's like hey we need to rerun experiments covid changed <laughs> our environment let's try to run yeah. some new experiments or some things we've run in the past because they might work now there might be yeah. the time for them you know i guess even to tie it back to another thing we talked about, I guess that you can think of it in the same way as, uh, you know, forecasting that deterministic model where we assume that there is one forecast and you're either right or wrong, right? You made it or you didn't and you suck if you didn't and you're great if you did. When really there was a certain percentage chance that you would make that. And if you didn't, you weren't wrong. You just fell into that other percentile. And if you do it enough times, You'll learn more about the likelihood. And even when we know the probabilistic forecast, we still fall into that 
resulting thinking, I guess, where we say, oh, that was wrong. It wasn't wrong. It was in the 15%, you know, and we acknowledged up front that that could happen, but we forget that we thought that's okay. (laughs) So it's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess it's just realizing that life isn't black and white, a deterministic binary kind of thing that we live in probabilities and we don't know if something's right or wrong until we try it a few times, see what happens. I guess that's why they have the scientific method and repeat experiments over and over <laughs> before right. they call it valid. <laughs> yeah, and and I would say you probably have something to investigate in your organization if you run yeah. experiments and you have like a success rate of like ninety percent. It's like I yeah. don't think so. Like you're not trying no hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you know the outcome before you run that. Yeah. It's not a real experiment, you know. You're not like, asking the hard questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, this has been fun. Awesome. Well, thanks you. Thanks so much, Julia, for for com- joining us on the podcast. Um, at this time, is there anything you want to plug um, to our listeners? Of course, always. Um, no, we've been talking a lot about metrics, and I'd like to invite everyone to try out Actionable Agile. Uh, you can go to actionableagile.com and learn about all the different flavors that we have. We have a SaaS product. Uh, we have a an embedded version in Jira and an embedded version in Azure DevOps services. Um, So lots of places where you can do it. And um, you can take very minimal data and start getting all of these insights that we've been talking about. Um, So I'd love to um, have people try that out. There's free trials. And also um, my company is sponsoring Lean Agile Global on May 24th and 25th. It's a great online uh, conference, second year online this year. And uh, I think last year they did an excellent job with making a virtual conference almost as fun as a, or even as fun as an in-person one. So um, oh, we're sponsoring that. We're going to have a virtual booth and I'm going to be speaking there too. So I'm really excited uh, for those things. And I just want to have more conversations with people about this stuff so I can learn more about what people are experiencing, like Jeff's situation and whatnot. You know, um, those are important things to hear as a trainer, coach, product owner, et cetera, so that we can continue learning as well. So I can't wait to just chat with people. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.